Innovation Matters, the podcast about sustainable innovation. I'm Anthony Schiavo. I'm a senior director at Lux Research. I'm joined by my two colleagues, Kartik and Mike, as always. We are here to discuss everything related to sustainable innovation. Kartik, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Thanks. Did you go to F1 over the weekend? I did. I uh, went to Zanford for the qualifying session, but it was rainy, so I got drenched. Um, it's a side note. I mean, when you're going for F1 races that you like the rain because it adds excitement, but you don't want to be the one getting drenched. So highly recommend watching rain forecasted races at home, but, uh, <laughs> definitely a fun, definitely a fun event. Yeah. And Max won for a ninth record time. So, you know, orange yeah. fever. Everything you could ever want from a terrible outside event. I don't know. I'm, I'm still totally <laughs> off it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Mike, you like, like it if, uh, you know, we get fusion cars, maybe, you know, fusion powered F1 cars, maybe you like that. But uh... I think as an American, if they, you know, only turned left, I would appreciate it more, but it's uh, not to be, not to be. <laughs> or if they did grilling, if you could grill at an F1 event, I think I would like it more. But I understand there's not a ton of grilling happening, so it's, what's the point? True. How about you, Mike? I just baked cupcakes this weekend, so. Wow. Incredible stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Maple cupcakes with blueberry frosting, though. Maple cupcakes with blueberry frosting. Is is fall truly here? This is a fall, like, (laughs) cupcake flavor for sure. (laughs) Okay. We have enough enough small talk. We have a lot of news to cover as well. Um, Kartik... The first piece of news you brought to us, it's about a, an interesting company developing a, a pumped hydro solution. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so re-energize, uh, because the name is weird because they use R-H-E to say re-energize and they have energize after anyway. Uh, they are a UK-based startup um, founded in 2019 and they claim to develop this proprietary working fluid called R19 that is 2.5 times denser than water. And essentially they claim that with their fluid, they can reduce elevation requirements for a hydro system by more than 50%, which in turn means that you can expand the potential of hydropower or pumped hydro storage to previously overlooked geographies. And they have conducted a few tests in 2022 uh, in Canada, where they tested three systems, uh, two systems using plain water at elevation differences of 50 meters and 25 meters. Uh, They compared the power output of this to a third test, which used their fluid. And they published the results stating that, yes, indeed, our solution works and that you can potentially you know, move to different places where you would typically not use hydropower. And they have already found about 6,500 sites in the UK where they say that, you know, you can deploy hydropower and this was not considered before, um, which is quite interesting for me. I mean, I guess I have, I'm, I'm really quite skeptical about this just from a baseline perspective, because I mean, we were talking about it when the when the news broke when this came out and 
you still have really substantial limitations on where you can deploy this technology. Like, I understand that it is um, more suitable or more possible, but, you know, significantly more possible of something that's really difficult is, is still really difficult, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and I'm also just skeptical as like an energy storage system. You know, the point of, to me, the point of conventional hydro is that where it works really well, it's really, really good, right? And then mm-hmm. where it doesn't work that well- And really, really cheap. And really cheap, right? Because exactly. you're taking advantage of a natural formation. It's like, okay, well, if you're doing something that's, that's sort of a more marginal version of that, um, why not just use a battery, right? Like, is this, because, you know, the difference between like having a million gallons of water and a million gallons of your custom working fluid is a lot because water, notable, exists, <laughs> right? <laughs> you don't have to manufacture it. it, it it's already out there in a lake. So falls out of the sky. You know. Falls yes. out of the sky. It's really good. You know, we, we love we love it when it does that, um, especially if you're trying to race a car at the time. Um, but like changing that, deviating from that is is not a small change. It's, it's an enormous change, right? Um, and even um, saying, oh, well, we have these improvements and, and temperature management and and density and all this stuff, it's it's actually a huge to me step up in difficulty, not a not a step down in difficulty at all. Yeah, and it's also there's also these these sort of technical questions about the like the viscosity or the boiling point of like this working fluid. Like if this is this really I'm picturing it, it seems to be like this really thick sludge like stuff, like the speed that it's flowing at is gonna be relevant for the efficiency of this of this process too. So I don't know. It's an interesting idea, but it just seems like there's there's a lot of issues, and I think you'd have to be a little skeptical of, yeah, whether it's it's really going to be an improvement on some of the other options that are out there. Uh, it's interesting to note in their patent application because if you go through their public website, they don't you know disclose what this fluid is. It's of course their secret sauce, but in their patent application, they claim to use water as the base, and they add a surfactant and some mineral salts to make this sludge of theirs. Uh, So I sort of look at this and think, well, if you're having particulate matter in water and you're going to run this through a turbine, then what happens to the impeller blades when, you know, they get, you know, impinged by these fine particles? Uh, For viscosity management, as you mentioned, Mike, they are actually looking at a, a heat transfer fluid as well with ethylene glycol and water. So they have this heat transfer system that's going to essentially maintain the temperature and the viscosity, other flow parameters. Uh, but even if we say this all works, um, so how their system works in a, in a way is they have these storage tanks stored un- under the ground in which they store this fluid. It's not a natural formation as is with conventional hydropower. Now, I was looking at this and going, if you still reduce elevation requirements, you're still not reducing area requirements, right? Uh, you still need a large amount of area if you want to use it as a long duration source. So, and and land acquisition is always a big problem with hydro, even conventional hydro. So I don't know how they're going to solve that problem. Let uh, I mean, this, I don't think it solves anything actually with hydro, <laughs> to be frank. Uh, maybe the one thing that happens is you... Uh, look at this and go, okay, well, maybe I could have a smaller system that works in a microgrid where I don't have to look at large storage durations. 
remote hill where you know you can't get transmission capacity maybe there it works but to claim that it's going to expand the reach of hydropower to other geographies is something i do not buy okay i think we can leave that one there um it is an interesting one but we have a lot of news like i said and our next story <laughs> is um one that is really interesting combines a lot of things we've been talking about um the hungarian government basically i think in the last couple of weeks applied a carbon tax to its cement industry which is not that interesting but what's interesting is they applied it retroactively um and this is really uh, sort of a the next step in a series of actions that uh Viktor Orbán's government has been undertaking to it's not really clear um you know some people are saying they're going to try and nationalize the industry um they are sort of trying to like they had this initiative to to potentially nationalize it in may um there has been these taxes on excess profits there's this sort of crackdown and there's this sort of um you know government intervention um in the the cement space in hungary and this in particular um is this sort of uh, carbon tax and and this is a sort of sustainability angle that goes above and beyond what's even required by the eu cbam now i want to start by <laughs> clarifying this podcast's position on victor orban and the hungarian government not good okay <laughs> not not a fan um and i think it's pretty obvious that this is not coming from a place of uh, genuine concern about the environment and or uh, sustainability but it is going to raise a couple interesting legal questions one what, what is the level of government intervention you know and nationalization that's allowed or, or permissible legally permissible in the eu i mean hungary is part of the eu and secondly um this idea of retroactive carbon taxes um is you know i think pretty clearly not particularly legal under the sort of current set of laws but an important case because a lot of you know one of the things we've talked about a lot is like hey like will companies end up being held legally liable for past emissions right are comp- like the same way that you know companies are held legally liable for past uh, chemical pollution right um so this is an interesting test case for those things as well as just an interesting sort of geopolitical moment Mike, what's your what's your read on this? Well, based on my sophisticated understanding of Hungarian property law, I think I can confidently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, I don't have a great read, obviously, on on how some of those those issues are going to play out. It's also not, you know, because as as you said, it doesn't seem to be. Um necessarily particularly uh you know climate or environmentally motivated at least not uh in a you know a clear or pure way then it's probably not the best test case either for mm-hmm. you know potential other regulations around uh you know some of these issues like like liability for past emissions 
But I do think it's kind of interesting in that, you know, this issue of nationalization and again, the, the, the contention, at least from some sources in the industry, is that this is more just a gambit by uh, by the government to try to, to, to nationalize the, the cement industry. Um, and we have called out, and I think it is probably still true, that nationalization of industries that otherwise are not going to be viable um, in a world of, of higher carbon prices and more serious um, carbon restrictions um, you know, aren't going to be sufficiently profitable for the private markets in, in that sort of scenario is something that is you know, potentially likely to happen in, in a number of areas. So again, not the best sort of test case for, for that, but if you see, yeah, it is something that I think that we could see being repeated, maybe with somewhat different motivations and, and processes, <laughs> but could, could see repeated in other areas uh, as well as, you know, CBAM and some of these other, other regulations start to bite. Yeah. I think, you know, also just the interplay of CBAM um, and more of these national level um, legislation, national level sort of impacts. Again, this is sort of an interesting test case because it's so extreme, sort of not an interesting test case because it's so sort of not particularly sustainability motivated. Um, but we're definitely going to see more and more industry pushback, both against these sort of policies in general, but in particular against you know, saying, oh, well, we have the CBAM or we have these EU level policies um, and the combination or the way that these national level policies are intersecting with the EU level policies is creating an unfair business issue or an undue burden, right? Um, so it, it is something that I, I do want to just track as we, we look forward to, to understanding how these industries will evolve in Europe. And while we're on the, the call-out section of the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to touch on, uh, I don't know if I have anything super substantial to say about this, but Lux Capital, so first of all, disclaimer, Lux Capital is not Lux Research. Um, they were involved in the founding of Lux Research, you know, almost two decades ago at this point, but are, are no longer have any sort of involvement or link to, to Lux Research. Um, they have an editorial, which is sort of an interesting thing in and of itself, but their editorial group uh, last week put out this video on AI and the creative classes. The title of the video is You Are Not As Original As You Believe, which really <laughs> sets the tone. Um, and, you know, uh, the video stinks. It's it's really, it's, it's not good. Um, it basically posits that AI is going to replace 90 to 98% of creative work. Um, it doesn't really substantiate this claim at all, which I guess could be fine in some case. It, it, if you want to make a video that says, hey, like this is what's going to happen and here are the implications of that, um, that would be fine. But the video doesn't do that either. It just says, dang, like all these people are going to be able to put out of work. That's crazy. Um, so there's not much substance to it, but the vibe is really bad. Like the title, you are not as creative as you believe. Like the specific reason they say like, yeah, like, you know, content is just direct anyway. So, you know, AI will just replace it. And the reason why all this marketing content is direct is because people aren't original. 
I mean, that's that's sort of ex- explicitly the point. And it's just like, hey, like, what? You know, LuxCap is an investor in AI. And uh, if I was investing in AI and, you know, routinely like, called in front of Congress to testify on stuff, I would not put out a video that was like, yeah, my shit is going to put people out of work for sure. Like, <laughs> my, my thing will devastate the economy. Like, and, and you know, I, I wrote about this and it, yeah. it's just, it's just sort of really, really, I mean, stuck in my throat. Right. And sort of broke the age old adage of not getting mad on the internet, but it, it just really rubbed me the wrong way. So Mike, what, what, what did you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 claims in the video are, you know, maybe a little strong, but you know, as you'd expect from somebody who's trying to promote this this technology, but not necessarily that that far off. I mean, I do think it's the case, and you've you know you've written about it also in marketing context. AI is going to displace a lot of the the types of uh, creative work and marketing and, and, and other areas. And it's made some sort of interesting points, I think that saying, Oh, you know, well, the, this may be also may make it harder for people to get into the, to these industries because you do, you know, often start out sort of learning the trade of writing for a newspaper or doing graphic design or whatever, by doing this kind of really simple, basic stuff that is the same stuff that's most likely to get automated by AI. Um, so, and I didn't have, I didn't agree with all of it, but I didn't have a huge problem with the analysis. I do think it's more just, uh, as you said, the vibes are kind of off here. Um, and, and, and it does kind of seem to, to lean into the causes of, a of a potential AI backlash or the, the public policy reaction against this, you know, cause like you said, I mean, it's, and I think it's, it reflects their they're aiming at different audiences. Uh, you, you commented on a VC firm having a, a media arm, and that's actually getting pretty common now. Like Andreessen Horowitz has this like, huge media group. They produce a ton of podcasts and other content and stuff. And a lot of that is to position themselves as thought leaders and you know forward-thinking, savvy people to entrepreneurs and to other investors. But I think particularly with AI, where uh, it's a hot public policy topic, there is that other audience of policymakers and the, just the general public who uh, maybe they weren't thinking of as much when they they made this particular particular piece. Well, one thing I know for sure is that this podcast ain't going away because of AI, so this will still last. You know, uh, I, I'm already <laughs> training AI models on your guys' voice for sure. <laughs> I don't think Karthik AI would sound nice, but uh, uh, either way, uh, Anthony, you brought this up on the Innovation Matters blog, which our listeners should be following on LinkedIn, the Lux Research Innovation Matters blog, where you did mention the 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 thought process behind policy and even the discussions around policies restricting the capabilities of AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that is definitely because of the fact that people are skeptical and scared that they're going to lose their jobs, right? You don't want that if you're a politician. Um, But do you see these policies coming into effect? Yeah, I mean, the the Biden administration just put out a um, sort of a roadmap for AI, not really even legislation, but just policy. Um, And it's it's all pretty milquetoast at this time. 
but there's definitely stuff that could impact the the value AI, right? I mean, you have first of all the sort of like SAG-AFTRA strikes where the use of AI is really at issue. I mean, this this video is very explicitly about that in, in a real way. Like they show clips of the SAG-AFTRA strikes, and the guy mm-hmm. is like these people will lose their jobs. It's like, okay, <laughs> like, uh, I don't need to ask about your stance on unionization, I guess. Um, but like, you know, you're going to have sort of individual labor action, right? Where it's going to be sort of negotiated between different groups, what the potential use of AI is, but then also uh, copyright. I mean, like these AI systems rely on essentially taking copyrighted work, you know, or, intellectual property that is not generated by them using that as training media and uh, then sort of producing content that is not copyrighted or not captured by that original intellectual property sort of uh, protection. And there's, you know, already a lot of lawsuits and um, different actions trying to change those rules or enforce the rules. Um, and I, I do think like uh, a lot of the innovations of the last sort of decade from the digital or from Silicon Valley, evading regulation is a big part of this, right? Like you look at Uber, WeWork, right? Evading regulations, mm-hmm. you know, around hotels or, you know, uh, Airbnb, right? Um, evading regulations on taxis, crypto, right? I mean, you mentioned Andreessen Horowitz and it's... Uh, Crypto is all about evading regulations. Like that's what makes it work as a as a technology. It's, it's a value proposition of the technology, and I do think there's an element here of of um, of that. Although I will say AI is the most meaningfully sort of useful. I think of these technologies. Like <laughs> as much as I'm a hater on, on Silicon Valley, even I am sort of you know forced to recognize that this is a pretty impactful piece of piece of innovation. Yeah, I mean, this stuff is going to happen. Uh, AI is is definitely going to have a big impact on on a lot of these areas, and I, I do think you know that's why people who are trying to make it happen want to have you know a way of talking about what's going to happen that is not just like hey, you guys are going to be screwed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I will say AI is going to happen if we make it happen, right? It's not an inevitable process, and and I think this is the something I want to push back on a lot of the language from. Silicon Valley in particular, or just tech founders in general, it's like, well, this technology is going to be developed, so it needs to be us who develops it. Or, you know, the the Chinese are going to develop AI, so America has to develop the best AI. Like, you know, this idea of an AI arms race. It's like, no, we actually could just not develop AI. Um, there's a lot of technology we, we've chosen not to develop. I mean, look at um, the, the global phase out of CFCs or like nuclear weapons. You know, there's a lot of stuff where we... We've come together to not develop things, right? And the process of it being developed is not inevitable. So we don't have to treat it as inevitable, right? Um, and, and that's what, like, one of the things that frustrated me about the Lux Capital video, where it's like, they're like, oh, AI is inevitably going to be developed and, like, push these people out of work. And it's like, you're doing that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of aligning their role in the whole thing. Yeah, though I think with with something as broad as AI, it is more a question of how than than if, right? Um, it's uh, I, I do think you can and people do go too far with like, well, it's going to happen, so we just got to you know do whatever. Um, but I think 
probably thinking about what are the most constructive ways you know for society to develop this is is more a more useful way to think about it than you know how do we just completely stop it at least in the case of something like ai All right, we are back and now talking with Leah Ellis, who is the CEO of Sublime Systems, uh, a low-carbon cement company. So welcome, Leah. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, right. So for a little background on Sublime and, and, and yourself, right? You were you're an electrochemist. Uh, you worked on lithium-ion batteries, and um, your your co-founder also of Sublime, Yet Bing Chang, is a, a well-known uh, battery entrepreneur. He's helped to start A123, Form Energy, 24M, and 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 so on. So, how is it that uh, the two battery folks got into the cement business here? Yeah, a uh, great question. It's not often that those two worlds collide: electrochemistry and and cement. So. Um, you know, the the way it happened is, you know, I, I had done my PhD in electrochemistry, worked um, with Tesla developing cell chemistry for them, improving their energy density and lifetime. And after my PhD, I got no strings attached funding to go anywhere, work with anyone. And I chose to work with Yet Ming Chang at MIT because for the reasons you said, he's a prolific inventor and entrepreneur. And I, I just like hanging around with those types of people. So when we first met his idea was to, you know, take the the renewable energy that we're producing now more abundantly and at lower cost than ever before. And instead of putting it in a battery, use it to make something that would otherwise be very carbon intensive. So that was sort of the, the tagline was electricity to X, where X equals cement, um, because cement is 8% of global CO2 emissions. Um, and I always knew that, you know, having a big impact in cement because it is such a big lever would always have uh you know a bigger impact than you know uh you know a, a twofold increase in lithium ion battery performance um so i felt that was really really motivating cuz even a small improvement could really have an outsized impact so yeah yet and i have been working on this idea ever since so it's been 5 years now and we spun out Sublime Systems in March 2020, right as the pandemic was also sp starting up. And since then, we've been very focused on scale. So cement is also the biggest industry by mass in the world. So it's very important for us to show that this thing works at scale. So we went very quickly from a gram to a kilogram to 10 kilograms continuously. And now we are operating a pilot plant um, that can produce up to 250 tons of cement per year and still pushing on scale even harder in the coming years. Expect to um, launch a plant to produce tens of thousands of tons in the coming years. So, Leah, um, you know, one of the things our podcast about is about is this idea of innovation process, right? And kind of the sausage getting made in innovation. So, you know, I'm curious at the very early stages um, how did you know that it was time, right, in March 2020, which, you know, <laughs> a little questionable, but mm -hmm. how, how did you know it was time? And how, when you sort of came to that decision, what were the resources or what was your first steps? I'm curious, because obviously, you know, 
you've ended up in this sort of Greentown ecosystem. You're in Boston. There's this really strong ecosystem. But I, I'm curious at that sort of very early stage, what that process looked like or what that um, what those first couple steps were from taking this from research to, you know, something that would be more commercial. You know, that that is a really terrific um, question. And I, I think I've, I've learned a lot about this process of, of innovation over the past few years because the work I was doing in batteries before, it was incremental. And that's sometimes used as a pejorative, but, you know, it was putting one foot solidly in front of the other. And we, we were still inventing a lot and filing a lot of IP, but it was always starting from the bottom up. And what I learned when I came to Yet Ming Cheng and uh, came to MIT and started working with Yet Ming Cheng is that he goes about the invention process in a totally different way. And so I very much learned a lot from working with him where he starts from the top down. He starts with a tagline, like, wouldn't it be awesome if we could say this, if we could say we can make cement with renewable electricity? And he has the advantage of being at MIT, like, you know, 40 years as a tenured prof, and he can see all of these industry trends moving. So he really comes at it from, you know, a very high level. And then he works with really smart people in his lab to sort of fill in the blanks. And it's, you know, you throw things at the wall and you bounce things off each other. It's one of the funnest things, you know, ever. I think, um, you know, I love that part. (laughs) Um, So really, that's what it was. And it's, you know, it's a creative process and you really can't do it alone. Like you really need a sparring partner. Um, so I think that is that is what I learned um, with Yet Ming Chang. And he's he's incredible. He continues to do it. I mean, he's totally prolific. I like to use the analogy of stone soup. I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar <laughs> with that analogy, yeah. but, you know, so. a beggar. Yeah, if it's a common one, but, you know, a beggar comes to town with a stone, says he can turn it into soup um, and nobody believes him, but they want to, you know, give him a shot because he's charming and charismatic. And so they all lend him carrots and onions, um, you know, and he ends up making a soup out of a stone. So um, I think that's that's really I think what it what it takes for these like really out of the box ideas. And, you know, when is it the right time to spin out of a lab? I have to say, I have to give yet credit for that too. I think, you know, me being a first time entrepreneur, I probably would not have had the guts to say, you know, I'm very confident in this because it is a leap of faith, but he had seen this many times before he knew that, you know, staying in the lab and doing more scientific things was just going to yield (laughs) diminishing diminishing returns so um that's you know you kicked it out of the nest yeah Yeah. our advice to all listeners is simply work with the best institution and the most prolific inventor of our time it's just just that easy um so lucky you know i think you're joking a little bit but i think in all seriousness working with the best people is really one of the best things in life and i would I would recommend that to anyone. Like, go find, go find your people, go find your tribe, and just brainstorm with them and have fun, and go out for beers or burritos and just figure stuff out together. It doesn't have to be with yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was a little joking, but I think it's really interesting that you it is so mission driven or so you know results oriented in, in that way because you think of academic work and particularly academic sort of spinouts as being professor has invented something and now they're spinning out a company to figure out what to do with it right you see this a lot in like materials especially 
sort of the classic, like basic research driven um, startup or spin out. Solution in search of a problem sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And this was very much the opposite. And maybe that's part of the reason why <laughs> MIT is, is one of the better, you know, arguably the best institution in the world at this kind of thing. Right. Totally. And I think that, I think that should change. And I think part of the way incentives are structured at universities where like, you know, people need to get tenure and citations and, you know, they're not measuring their, their progress in patent applications or value created or, and so I do, I do love it how, you know, MIT is so entrepreneurial focused. And I think that really pulls out the best in the people that go there. Well, yeah, I mean, and speaking of, you know, finding your tribe and being around smart people and, and these sort of ecosystems, I mean, one of the, um, you know, the things that uh, you have taken advantage of in, in the local ecosystem there is Greentown Labs. So this this uh, incubator uh, in well-known climate tech incubator in Boston um, that uh, uh, that Sublime is, I think, still based at, right? I, I'm sure you've, uh, you're expanding beyond, but... Um, you know, what was the, the motivation to, to, to join um, Greentown and to, to use that facility? And, and, um, and, and what, have the, what have you seen as kind of the impacts of that? Yeah, um, being a Boston-based startup, joining Greentown Labs was a, a real no-brainer. And I have to say, Greentown offers so much. I like to call it, you know, just fertile ground where you can, you can start and your, your growth is just accelerated and it's sort of you know, the oxygen you breathe and the soil that you're planted in. So I think one of the most important things is that it's kind of like a WeWork for startups or like a hotel for startups. So you come in there and especially as a technical founder, it let me focus on the stuff that I was good at and that moved the needle, like developing the technology, improving the strategy. And I didn't have to work about, worry about internet or coffee and then minimal work on like you know, safety and permitting and hazardous waste removal. And there's a lot of logistical stuff that goes into a hard tech startup. I mean, I can't just do this with a laptop and an internet connection. I need a lot more. So they take care of that. And that really makes things go faster. And I wish there that every startup had an ac access to something like Greentown Labs. And I know um, resources like this are springing up all over the U.S. and, and elsewhere as well. Um, another thing that Greentown offers is, you know, a community and support. There's a lot of networking opportunities with investors and strategics and other founders. And I have to say that other founders part is, you know, so important, especially as you do this for the first time, just gaining confidence and um, learning from other people. It just is profoundly helpful on so many levels. Yeah, and I think I mean one of the we get a lot of uh, questions from from our clients at Lux who are you know more on the corporate strategic side, uh, most of them, about innovation clusters like Greentown. Which ones should we get involved with? What are the benefits of working with the with these kinds of organizations? So, I don't know what you've seen from from sort of that side of the thing. I mean, Greentown has, a, as I think people probably know, a ton of these uh, these corporate partners, you know, big companies in oil and gas, chemicals, industrials, right, that are involved there. Um, what do you, you know, from your perspective, what do you see as far as, you know, maybe the corporates that that seem to you to be getting the most out of the Greentown experience and ecosystem? 
Yeah, well, like most things, I think you get out of it what you put into it. If you're going to go in and, you know, just have your name on a plaque, you know, that's you're probably not going to get much out. If you just show up to the parties, if you just take, you know, take, you know, do some window shopping and take a bunch of meetings, you know, you're not going to get anything out of it. But I think if you really dig in and understand, I mean, there's there's a whole portfolio of stuff. I mean, you just walk around Greentown Labs. It's like a goodie bag full of random and interesting clean technologies that really span everything. So if you're a big strategic, I have no doubt there's something in there that touches your supply chain that could be interesting to you. Um, and just, you know, partnering, helping develop these things, scheduling regular calls, like just trading information. I think there's stuff that, you know, a, a corporate strategic sees on the horizon. And then, you know, you could get blindsided by something moving very quickly that, you know, you need to talk to the innovators frequently to just have your eye on. So what I've observed is that the ones who get them, you know, those who like it, like it a lot. And, and those people are the ones who are the most engaged on a really thoughtful level, um, not just, you know, checking boxes or, you know, doing it for, I don't know, for the, the brand association or the LinkedIn posts. The LinkedIn yeah. posts are really important. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> As someone whose job description includes posting on LinkedIn, I just want to push back on that point a little bit. <laughs> no, no. I, I guess, what do you think? There's this, are there any pitfalls with this model? I guess is the big question because you have um, so much, especially for hard tech startups, like you mentioned, there's so much of a logistical benefit. Um, but are there any like pitfalls or any challenges, especially, you know, Sublime in particular is focused on scaling up quickly and um, making that leap from, you know, a Greentown like facility to your own facility seems like a really big leap. I mean, it'd be a big, big leap in, in any situation, but I'm just curious as to how, you know, is there like a silver or a, I don't know. I don't know what the metaphor is. <laughs> um, you know, there is a challenge. There's a challenge of, first of all, if you're sharing space with so many other people, you really have to be a good neighbor in terms of dust. For example, cement is a bulky and dusty business. So, you know, there's challenges there with making sure your neighbors are compatible, having good fences and all that stuff. Greentown also has a challenge, sort of Tetrising. Um, startups around each other, especially as you're growing very quickly, you might have to move around within Greentown several times just to right size it. And then you should move. And that is, you know, Greentown is a not for profit. So they are there to be that fertile ground to, you know, catalyze the growth of these seedlings. So for us, you know, we have to be a very we will have a large footprint. And so we have to grow to a certain size within Greentown so that we can right size our next step. We don't want to do an expensive and time consuming intermediate step to our forever home. So mm -hmm. I think we are, you know, we occupy a large footprint within Greentown, but I think they realize that they're still, they're still doing us a, a, a you know, they're still catalyzing us and helping us in a way that's un unique to our business problem where we, you know, there's not many spaces that, that we could move into um, at this stage and, and have that not slow us down. 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. And for those who haven't been lucky enough to actually visit Greentown recently, Sublime does have like an entire like wing almost of <laughs> the one of the main buildings, sort of for of for desk their space, yeah. of desk space. Yeah, it's it's quite impressive. Um, I guess maybe Mike. I don't know if you had more questions on the the process side, but I I, I was curious. Or I we of course want to talk about not just how Sublime is doing, but what Sublime is doing, right? Um, and I guess maybe for our listeners who aren't as familiar, can can you just talk a little bit about the core tech and how it's different from what is established? And I know that this is kind of a big question, um, but just in, in, in the sort of the broadest strokes possible. Of course. Um, so today cement is made in these titanic fossil fuel fired kilns. So cement the biggest industry by mass in the world. We use more cement than any other material besides water. So the medium small cement plant is a million tons a year. Um, so, um, you know, it's so it's very high temperature. The, these kilns operate at 1400 degrees Celsius. They're fossil fueled. Um, and what Sublime does is we replace that high temperature fossil fuel process with an ambient temperature electrochemical process. So we like to say we're the electric vehicle of cement making. So we're a carbon avoidance technology. We're not a carbon capture technology. We're not net zero where net implies some addition and subtraction. We are, you know, a a true zero uh, cement producing process. So what we do is instead of heating up the calcium bearing minerals to break them down thermally. Um, And when you break them down, you're breaking all those bonds that make them inert and you're left at the cementitiously active and reactive material. So we break down minerals um, using electrochemistry, using an electrolyzer that um, produces acid and base and digests and precipitates these minerals and makes them react cementitiously reactive. And what, what we produce in the end is a concrete that has the same form fit function um, as today's concrete. It's the same chemistry we've been using for millennia since since Roman times. So same or better strength or durability. It's it's just a largely a, a, a process innovation around the, the breakdown of minerals, leveraging a lot of the electrochemical um, innovations of the past century, you know? Why didn't they think of this before? You know, they didn't have electrolyzers, they didn't have electricity, but now we do. And I think it'll be very obvious in retrospect that this is the obvious way to make cement if you're if you're going to be penalized for emitting CO2. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna circle back around on that point, um, kind of the long-term, the very long-term view. But, you know, I think the EV metaphor is interesting because obviously you have this technology, which is sort of like the electric vehicle, but there's a number of other technologies which might be more like a catalytic converter for your your gas car, right? Um, and how do you see, so whether it's, you know, we're going to capture the carbon dioxide, we're going to, you can turn it back, you can use it in the reaction, um, potentially to, to mineralize some of it. How do you see all these different technologies, as well as the ones that Sublime is working on? fitting together in the industry and and how do you see this kind of progressing right because we want to move quick and we want to eliminate emissions as quickly as possible but as you sort of mentioned there's a 
some of these are more net zero than others. <laughs> and <Right>. so there's, <laughs> there's kind of a, you know, there's kind of a wide range of options here and, and there's just a bunch of different benefits and drawbacks. So how, how do you see these technologies playing together? Um, I like to use the leaky faucet analogy. And, you know, this is actually inspired by a true story that I was not involved in for the record. Um, but it happened in my PhD lab where there was a leak in a piece of water chilled scientific equipment. There was two inches of water on the floor. Um, you know, the PhD student was panicking. They didn't want to get in trouble. So they grabbed a mop and a bucket and they started cleaning it up, hoping no one would notice at the end of the day. Um, but that puddle of water wasn't going away and it, it kept getting bigger. Right. And so Ultimately, they called in the lab manager who was furious that they hadn't thought of turning off the, the faucet that was continuously filling this piece of equipment, this leaky piece of equipment with water. So I think that's a great metaphor for what's going on here with CO2 emissions. We've got like a, a leaky faucet and we have to stop this problem as quickly as possible. So there's, I think, three ways you can approach this. I think the best way to approach it is to turn off the tap, um, to fix the leak. That's carbon avoidance. That is the most durable, permanent, um, most easily verified and, and measured approach to solving the problem. Um, but it may take time. I'd say like the most immediate thing you could do, which is cheap and easy and sort of defers the problem to leaders post-combustion carbon capture. Or, you know, the analogy would be putting a bucket underneath the leaky tap and collecting it at the point source. Um, and I think that's the fastest thing you can do just to buy yourself time. And then the third thing you can do, which I think is the least wise um, before you've done, you know, started working on the two other approaches, is to grab the mops and buckets and start mopping up the water or the CO2 off the floor or, you know, scooping CO2 directly from the air where it is, of course, more diffuse, more energy intensive to collect. And then, of course, you have to use energy, oftentimes fossil fueled energy to um, move that process along. So you don't end up permanently solving the problem or, you know, getting ahead of the problem in any way. So I, I like to think of that for, you know, cement making. I think there are ways that you can, there are carbon avoidance technologies like supplementary cementitious materials um, that are being deployed now, but those aren't, aren't full solutions. Um, you can never reduce cement emissions to zero, but they are being adopted at lightning speed, which is super encouraging. So there's this trend towards performance-based cement standards where you can move away from kiln-based cement and start using supplementary cementitious materials as long as you hit the performance. So same, you know, there's a laundry list of performance metrics um, that, you know, you know, describe what a cement is. So strength, set time, flow, durability. So do whatever you want to the chemistry as long as it acts in this way. And that way you end up solving the right problem um, when you're working on uh, a solution. And then the second Thing that's happening these days are people are well governments and, and and cement majors are investing hundreds of millions billions of dollars actually in post-combustion carbon capture and i think that's a good way to you know bend the curve as soon as possible um, but those double the capex double the opex 
double the cost of cement production, at least double, right? Um, and then there's the problem of what are you going to do with all that CO2? Because each ton of cement results in a ton of CO2. Cement's already the biggest industry by mass, so there's no use for all of this CO2. It has to go underground. So then you've got logistical complexity and also costs associated with disposal. Um, you know, and then, there, and then of course, there's d direct air carbon capture and offsets of different kinds. But um, I don't think that should be the focus for the industry or for any, any industry, in, in my opinion. But I, I am, of course, biased because <laughs> I'm focusing entirely on carbon avoidance. Yeah, it's interesting you brought that up because we were talking about it earlier on the, on the podcast, specifically about DAC and Occidental Petroleum in the U.S. They have this $1.1 billion DAC hub. And like the CEO basically said, DAC gives us a license to continue to operate, right? Which isn't exactly the same as saying it's a license to continue to admit, but it's pretty close in my <laughs> opinion. In general, there's a lot of, I would say, controversy or, I don't know, disagreement about what the role of particularly the oil and gas industry should be in, uh, like the energy transition and the future sustainable sort of production. There's probably a lot less controversy around like the future of like what the cement industry should be doing because maybe there's less conspiracy theories about big cement trying <laughs> to like, there's no like just stop cement protesters as far as I'm aware. <laughs> um, but I think there's still a, a, a sort of a fair question around, hey, like there are these large organizations, they have incentives, which are not, you know, not strictly just to stop emitting, right? Um, what kind of role should they play in like, how, like, I'm sure, you know, people have said, oh, this is just greenwashing or, you know, you know, there's all these different accusations. How do you think about, like, the most productive way to both work with these existing producers who have a pretty wide set of incentives, including incentives to keep emitting? Um, and, like, how do you think about greenwashing as a potential concern? Maybe it's it's not a concern for, you know, your company and it's just because of, of you know, like you said, you're, you're so focused on true zero as sort of the baseline for your production. But I'm just curious for your perspective on any of those types of issues. Yeah, I I think, you know, maybe cement companies are similar to, um, you know, utilities or fossil fuel companies and that they have a tremendous amount, trillions of dollars invested. It's very capital intensive. So, you know, there's the status quo. And I understand, like, you know, they're they're capitalist entities and they have to make money. But um, I do think the solutions to decarbonize that they are available to them right now, like post-combustion carbon capture, where they have to double their capex, double their opex, like that's just not going to make sense. So, and in the long run, like it may be a short term, it would have to be heavily government subsidized. So I would argue that they should, well, and they're already doing this. So put the efforts into two things, into supplementary cementitious materials and performance-based standards. And so those standards um, are, have already changed in the United States. There's performance-based hydraulic cement standards. It's moving very quickly in Europe as well. Um, the developing world has used these performance-based standards for decades. So that's already happening. And I think that's wonderful. Um, you know, it, I would I would encourage these companies to think more about working with companies like Sublime, because if they're going to spend half a billion or a billion dollars on decarbonizing their operations, they might as well spend half a billion or a billion dollars helping us build a Sublime cement plant. So for the same investment that you're going to put into a carbon capture plant, 
you could just put one into a carbon avoidance plant and then you're doubling your production of cement for the same cost. You're getting the same, you know, CO2 benefit with, you know, it's like a two birds, one scone solution. So I would encourage, you know, governments and also these cement majors to, you know, take this innovation seriously. And I don't, I don't want to develop it alone. I, you know, we are very good at technology and electrochemistry and material science. I think we are decidedly less good at the things that the cement majors are good at, like, you know, logistics and quarrying and, you know, mining operations. I would, I would love to find the right partner to just do this together with. So um, I think there's a lot of work that can be done in, in partnership with, with in existing players. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think um, and maybe it's just one one final question. I, I um, you know, so we met when you spoke at one of our Lux forums in 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 Boston a few months ago, and and one of the things that really kind of struck me there, and I think you heard it in that answer too, is that you're you know genuinely really passionate about addressing the the climate crisis, right? And I, I was just curious to see, you know, how do you how does that affect the way that you that you approach and run Sublime as this kind of I think very mission driven um, type of company? Yeah, we're we're definitely very mission driven, and our mission, which I I say frequently both internally and externally, is to have a swift and massive impact on reducing CO two emissions. So you know it may be maybe obvious to everyone, but I might as well just say it. You know. I think this is one of the hardest startups you could possibly do. Um, you know, disrupting the biggest industry by mass where there are very few and very large players. I mean, this is definitely an instance of, of David and Goliath. And, um, you know, I am not doing this to get rich quick. I, you know, I could be working for Tesla, making a lot more money than I am making now. And, you know, I do expect to get rich eventually because I think what I'm doing will create a lot of value. But I'm, I'm doing this because I care. I think it's urgent. I think it's important. And I would rather be doing this than anything else. I think what's also important about running a mission-driven um, organization is that, um, you know, you can, you can measure your, your impact, like that altruistic impact that you want to have, and you can measure it in business terms. So we measure our impact directly in the amount of cement we produce and sell. And so because we have this swift and massive, you know, our mission is to have this swift and massive impact, we are pushing hard and fast on scaling up and selling things. And so it, it ends up being, you know, the, that two birds, one, one scone thing again, like we are, we're having an impact and we're, we're intending to make a lot of money and a lot of value simultaneously. And I think that's very motivating to a lot of people. And I find people, you know, taking massive pay cuts, like up to $100,000 and leaving their jobs at places that are less mission motivated, where they can work with Sublime, um, you know, and, and young MIT grads, for example, they're, they're choosing to work at Sublime over other places. And I, I think, you know, coming back to what we spoke about before, just having really smart, kind, driven people, like when you have a mission-driven organization and you are so laser-focused on success, I think you get smarter people who work harder, but most importantly, you get people who work really well together. 
because it's not about individual success. It's about the success of the thing you're trying to achieve as a team. And I think that makes it funner and it just makes it so much easier to run a company. Like I have to admit that, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm an academic, I guess I'm was a PhD and a postdoc before doing sublime, um, you know, management does not bring me joy, but I actually find it really easy to manage and run sublime because it's, it's like a self-assembling team. Like everybody is trying really hard to fit in and to, you know, um, accelerate this and, um, you know, <laughs> patch all the gaps. And so it, it makes it very easy. Um, yeah. 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 I love, I love the self-assembly metaphor and yeah, I think it's one of the things that's really exciting about being involved in, in climate tech and, and sustainable innovation right now is there are, it is an area that's drawing a lot of really, really smart and really driven and, and really engaging people. So, um, so yeah, we've really, really enjoyed, uh, the conversation. Appreciate you, you taking the time to, to share with us and, um, We'll, uh, we'll be looking forward to, to following uh, where things go from here with, uh, with Sublime. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on this program. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thank it's my you. pleasure. You can join, uh, join us again once you're uh, broadcasting from your yacht, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research. For more, visit www.luxresearchinc.com.